away man ray can you hear me can you hear me can you hear me you're You're on the other side of the world 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 aren't you yes i am almost directly below you kind of (laughs) really Uh, in australia well not really but pretty much two-thirds of the way around the planet i'm in wollongong australia an hour south of sydney and you're in ketchikan alaska on the complete northwest pacific coast so if i was to actually go out in the backyard and start digging I could maybe come yeah. out somewhere near you. Well, if you start digging, first you'd hit ocean because the <laughs> seawater would rush in and kill you. And then yeah. uh, that, that rock is so cooked up yeah, that okay. it'd be difficult to get through it. Then once you reach about 1,500 kilometers, it would be so hot that you'd just melt. Well, anyways, you are in Wollongong, and uh, the <laughs> slang is the gong, right? Uh, I, I was yes, reading up on yes. Wollongong. Yes, I'm and... on tour here. It's a two-month tour of Australia. I'm playing three of the major... Uh, cities in Australia, Sydney, Adelaide, and Melbourne. Melbourne. Yeah, and uh, it's a massive tour, and it's fantastic. It's going great. It's the chocolate diet, eh? Enough about me. Okay, all right. Quickly segueing. Yeah, you're in that uh, plush hotel room there, I see. But uh, I'm sitting here in Ketchikan, where uh, it's been. we've been having a great stretch of weather. I've gotten turned on to uh, mushrooms lately, Dave. Oh, really? Uh, the the well, kind not... you eat? <laughs> Well, yes, I did eat some the other day, and they were chantrelles from my own, my very own neck of the woods here. And uh, yeah, I, I think I saw been... the photo of that. Yeah, and how do you, and you know they're they're not, you know, it's always don't don't pick a wild mushroom unless you know what they are. Well, what I did is I it's been raining as it is wont to do here, and they had some nice sunshine, and I looked out in the yard and went, "What the heck? Look at all these mushrooms!" And went out there, and then. I was dazzled by the variety of them. And then I, I called up my friend, Barbara Morgan, who is a scientist and she yeah, knows good. her mushrooms. And I said, come on over for a tour, Barbara. We went through the woods and she showed me all these things. And then she said, those are the golden chanterelles. You can eat those. And I did. Fantastic. So, Fantastic. Yeah. I love mushrooms. Yeah. And mushrooms go back a billion years in time, man. But anyways, that's something else. What are you, what, what's up with you, man? I what's love with- fungi. On the road, I still have plenty of time to read the news and dive into science. And there's an article that just came out about T-Rex's arms, why they're so small. This, did you hear about this one? Well, no. You've, you've scooped me. Well, there's <laughs> a lot of theories about the tiny arms. Well, there's, yeah, these are only theories. And um, obviously, evolution prefers adaptations that help an organism survive. So as the T-Rex's head is getting bigger and his back legs are getting stronger, the arms are getting smaller because it's the head that's doing all the ripping and tearing of flesh. So that Somebody kind of makes sense. once described basically a T-Rex is a running head. Yes, you know? a running head. Yeah, but still, a Komodo dragon with the exact same eating lifestyle mm-hmm. still has powerful front legs. So... I guess it couldn't slither on its belly while it's chewing uh, on an animal. But so this latest paper is saying that the arms got smaller to avoid being eaten by other T-Rexes as they feed in a pack. So that 16 T-Rexes chomping down on a duck bill. If your arms are in the way of all these snapping massive heads, 
you got to be careful and uh, bring them close to your chest. Okay. This is an interesting theory. Was this written by uh, a PhD of some sort or some kid uh, for... <laughs> Yeah, this was written in the Dr. Report. Seuss book of dinosaurs. <laughs> no, um, this is a uh, article in Live Science, an online publication that does pretty much science, space, physics, health, planet Earth, strange news, animals. Okay, uh, and that's by and by Joanna Wendell, published about twelve hours ago, year October, twenty twenty two. Okay, the tiny arm theory. Hmm. Well, yeah. I think they just well, evolved away because they weren't really being yeah. used so much. But there's also the theories that they're used during mating to somehow hold on. But I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, the problem is they're only theories. And until we can go back in time. And ask the question, why the tiny <laughs> arms? Yeah, just don't taunt him because I think uh, they, they won't take that well. But, uh, yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. Now, this guest is one of those fantastic i i dove down deep fathoms into her research you dove deep i get it yeah it's usually my and, department yeah yeah there's very i know there's very little paleo about her work although yeah. there is all interconnections to the deep time however it is fascinating and i cannot wait well, the, to hear her talk. The, yeah, the topic of plankton came up a number of times as we talked about oil, and I told you I was working on a plankton drawing, so we've been, you know, really, it comes up every now in our conversations, and you said, get that plankton person. So I was reading a Scientific American, and I heard about the work of Dr. Kelly Benoit Bird in that article, and I was fascinated because she's working on plankton and how it moves around, but she's at Embare, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. My mind was blown, and I thought she'd be a terrific guest. You agreed, and we're going to talk to her. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, and we'll find out what mesopelagic means. That's right, the deep scattering layer. So I'm in Australia. You're in Alaska. She's in California at Monterey Bay Aquarium. Let's, That's right. Uh, let's, uh, I know. What? I'll dial up the Nemo phone and talk oh, to her. Oh, maybe you should speak whale as you do that. <laughs> Don't go there. Uh, all right, I won't go there. We're going to talk to Kelly Benoit Bird. I'm super excited, man. Call her up. Hey, Dave, meet Kelly Benoit Bird, sonic explorer, acoustic marine biologist, and senior scientist and science chair at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute in Moss Landing, California. Kelly, it's great to meet you here in Cyberville. Nice to see you too. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Dave. So excited, boy. This is one of those episodes where I dove deep. Sorry for the pun. I dove even so deeper, we, Dave. So Yeah, I bet you did. We ask all our guests, and we know the answer, and we're not going to be disappointed because you're field of study is so fascinating. But are you or have you ever been a paleo nerd? Well, I guess that uh, depends on what you define as paleo. Old, deep time, dinosaurs, way back to the, how about single cell animals in the, ar <laughs> the archaea? Well, so most of my work focuses on animal behavior. So much shorter timescales, but of course, all of that is set on 
the evolutionary stage that these animals are are uh-huh. kind of, have been on over a long period of time. Uh, so so we can think of that as sort of the paleo background for the work well, that that's I do. A, that's a yes and no. Well, I'll, I'll take that. Yeah, but you know, most kids go through a, a dinosaur phase, and I was uh, watching some of your uh, presentations, and I'm curious about your origin story. Your dad was a mechanic. And you had a life-changing fourth grade aquarium visit. Can you take us back to that? Where, what, what's your origin story? Yeah, that's that's right. I, I grew up in the northeast of the United States. I okay. uh, hadn't ever been outside of New England until I was in the fourth grade, and my family made a big trip, to, uh, which included an aquarium. Uh, I learned about, on that trip, about how uh, marine mammals, specifically toothed whales, use echolocation or biosonar. That they use sound to see their world just kind of blew my mind. That that they were in a completely different environment than I'd ever experienced was absolutely fascinating to me. And I decided that that's what I wanted to learn more about. I came home and read every single book in our public library that I could get, uh, even having to get special permission from the librarian to check out things from more than I was allowed to from the adult section. Um, oh, my goodness. In, in, the, in, the, in the nerd aisles, if you will, and oh, yeah. uh, uh, wanted to figure out how I could turn that into a career. Wow. So, so how did... come you didn't go down the bat route? <laughs> <laughs> I, I did actually for a little bit. I worked oh. as an undergraduate in a in a lab that studied bat biosonar, uh, and they're much further ahead, I think, in many ways in understanding the ecological processes of biosonar because it's a lot easier to study bats in the wild than it is to study dolphins in the wild. You could see them they, to start. But aren't they at a higher frequency compared to the lower frequencies of marine mammals? And most of the echolocation clicks of marine mammals are also quite high in frequency. Oh. Oh. You know, the ocean's opaque, so that presents a different challenge. Well, um, Kelly, I'm just curious, uh, going back to the childhood of that aquarium visit, did you actually see a dolphin or an orca at this place? Then somebody gave I you did. a presentation and you fell in love with the animal and it was just a moment yeah. like that? Exactly. And and I just was absolutely, you know, astounded by the fact that they saw the world, if you will, through a completely different lens than we do. And that to me was the the kind of captivating moment, not just, hey, these are animals with these incredible smiles and are really intelligent, but right. but that they have to process their environment in a way we just don't really understand uh, and are really good at it. Right. But, yeah, yeah. So it's one of my favorite words. You and I were talking about favorite words was uh, umwelt. Am I saying that correctly? What is that? Define it, please. Kelly? Well, why don't you go ahead, Ray? I thought you had a really great description. <laughs> well, umwelt is, uh, I think it means uh, a worldview to actually perceive the world in a completely different way. It's just the way you look at the world. And we humans are th- so human focus, anthropocentric, it's hard for us to even, you know, imagine what it's like for a, a marine mammal to be looking at the world through sound or bats flying through the sky and, and finding insects. We just don't, we, we'll never get it. So that's umwelt. Well, wait a minute. Some people do get it who have disabilities, the blind and the deaf. Their other sensory organs adapt and, and increase uh, the way they see the world, even sometimes better than fully functioning humans. Don't you agree? 
Well, I, I think that's uh, definitely true from a, um, a sensory perspective. But then there's yes. also the differences in the environment, right? We're right. used to being in a 2D-ish world. We're tied to the surface of the earth itself, and everything kind of springs from that. We're in the ocean. There is no, for most animals that live in the water column, there is no boundary, right? There's no bottom. There is nothing to orient to. A GPS position is meaningless because the parcel of water that you care about is constantly moving. And so right, in that way, right. I think these animals have to deal with a world that's entirely different from ours. Amazing. So it's hard for us to imagine that that alien world, but yet that's what your research is about. Exactly. Exactly right. Well, let's talk about this mesopelagic zone. Are the fish called mesopelagics or is the zone called a mesopelagic zone? Depends on who you ask, but we think of fish <laughs> that live in the mesopelagic zone are sometimes called mesopelagic fish, or if you're in the military, mesopelagics, because they like their short forms of everything. But right. but really, it just means middle water, right? It's this part of the water column that is neither touching the surface nor the seafloor and is typically defined by... Uh, the amount of light that gets there. It's not enough for photosynthesis, so you're not going to have plant life there, but it is often enough for some sort of visual communication or vision. Other terms for that include the twilight zone. You may have heard that concept. Sure. And that zone is 200 to 1,000 meters, depending on the, I guess, the density of the water. Or what, what would determine why it's not just exactly 1,000 meters below the surface worldwide? It really depends on the life that happens in that water column. Oh. So you, you can think about the water in Hawaii is really blue. There's not a lot of plant life relatively. That's why it's blue. But it also means the light penetrates really far. And so visual communication can happen much deeper in the water. Vision is, is more effective uh, than it is, say, off the coast of California, where we have an incredibly productive environment. The ocean's much greener. Light just doesn't get as far, and so that mesopelagic zone is shallower. So it's water clarity. Exactly. Ah. So it's also all the life within that water and the way it does affect the entire water column. But I, I thought maybe just to go through a few things just for our listeners and for ourselves, since I'm an art major, and um, the different definitions of uh, well, plankton. First of all, what is plankton? Sort of traditional view of plankton are things that get carried around in the water and have relatively little control of their own movement, right? It comes from... But they're alive. Exactly. They are alive. And so we have plant plankton or phytoplankton, um, zooplankton, uh, which are animal plankton, and then some other forms that people probably have heard less about in the um, microbial processes and things that are also called plankton. But the word itself means wanderer. So it's... Oh. Animals that oh. go with the flow, literally go with the flow. And then the uh, nuanced uh, definition to necton is something that can swim against that flow. Right? That's right. Right. So we are necton, so most, Dave. No, you're a necton. I'm a zooplankton. But okay, so, you go with <laughs> so most of these little fellers are dependent on the movement of the water to get around. But there are a, a certain amount that can actually have cilia or, or they move or how do they, what is their method of locomotion? So there's a wide range of different kinds of locomotory mechanisms, but even things we don't think of as actively swimming are often controlling their buoyancy. So they're 
playing around with where they are in the water column, which can help them move along with the right currents instead of getting swept into places they don't want to. Even, even phytoplankton plants are often controlling where they are in the water really? um, so that they can maintain themselves where they want to be. Uh, and we'll make changes to that uh, with uh, changes in upwelling or even day-night cycles in order to try to get where they want to go. So they're not they're not as passive as uh, we often think of them. Do all phytoplankton get their energy from the sun? It's a little more complicated. There are mixotrophic organisms that consume each other and uh, sometimes also photosynthesize. You get a, a, a mix of that. It's a the ocean is a complicated place, and there are a lot of solutions to the challenges of living life there. So, but the phytoplankton, basically the plant life in the ocean is up in the sunlit zone, right? Up in the epipelagic and the mesopelagic is below that. But one of the things I've always tried to get my head around is, and I, I, I've heard this uh, stated a number of times is every other breath I take is coming from the ocean. The ocean is, uh, the, the, the phytoplankton is actually producing oxygen and how do we humans, why is there, we're getting our breath from the ocean or are the fish needing oxygen too and consuming most of that oxygen in the ocean? How, how does that process work? About half of the oxygen in our atmosphere has been produced by life in the ocean. Wow. And so that's where you get that idea that, that it accounts for a significant part of our, of our respiratory cycles. The ocean is a key life support system for our planet. And your work is studying the health of that whole ecosystem. That's right. I'm, I'm really trying to understand how it works. You know, how do animals go about making a living in the ocean, which, again, is such a strange place to us that the, the ways we think about animals persisting and finding food and avoiding getting eaten don't always apply quite the same way in the ocean. And I'm trying to figure out um, how, how they go about doing that. Well, let's talk about some of these organisms. So. I was blown away to find out that the largest amount of vertebrates on planet Earth are these fish, these lanternfish and dragonfish in the mesopelagic zone that travel to the, they go up during the night and come back down during the day to escape predation, but they represent gigatons of biomass. From what I was reading in that Scientific American article about the largest. Your work. The largest migration of animals on the planet happens in the ocean on a daily basis. And they were coming up uh, in the evenings, going down in the day. And actually, this is the largest amount of biomass on planet Earth yeah, is in this the, mesopelagic zone. The most abundant vertebrate on the planet is actually a two or three inch long bristlemouth fish. Uh, and makes up the greatest biomass. And then when you add that to the other mesopelagic fish, like you said, the lanternfish and dragonfish, um, that represents just this enormous uh, carbon biomass. And each and every day, these animals move from the mesopelagic depths where they're trying to stay in the dark and avoid visual predators finding them and where they have to come up to the surface to get food. Uh, where there's enough sunlight for the phytoplankton to grow. We have much more abundance of resources there. So they do all of their feeding under the cover of darkness near the surface of the ocean before migrating back down again at sunrise. And so when you ask people what's the biggest migration on the planet, they'll usually say something like wildebeests. Right. Um, but this actually represents uh, a much more net movement of biomass than, than those great 
um, migrations on the Serengeti. Uh, so it's a really remarkable process, and uh, where learning is really critical for how the Earth functions. So are the bristlebacks and the uh, lanternfish, are they actually eating the, the phytoplankton? Most of them are eating zooplankton, uh, okay, but those so, zooplankton are also trying to follow those phytoplankton. Okay, so you end I up see. with sort of these ladders of migration of different right. scales that, that really bring all of these organisms together near the surface at night. The phytoplankton that sometimes undergo vertical migrations themselves often do so in a reverse way. So they try to be near the surface to acquire sun during the day, right. but then there's more nutrients deeper in the water column. So when there's no sun... They allow themselves to sink or actively swim down to take advantage of greater flux of those limiting nutrients. They wow. need fertilizer. They're able to swim after it. Wow, that's that's incredible. And how do you use sound to study this? So we use sound in a couple of different ways. The most important for understanding vertical migration is sonar. That's actually how we found out about vertical migration in the first place was after World War II. The Navy started using sonar more and more uh, to look for enemy submersibles, uh, submarines. Um, and when they started using sonar more frequently, they started to see some really funny things. They were seeing things that they thought were the seafloor actually getting much shallower at night than it was during the day. And uh, ah. you you paleo nerds will appreciate that uh, Dail is not a geologic time scale. Right. So, Wait, say that word again. What? Dail. Daily. Yeah, that daily, that day-night pattern is not a, that's not a, a geologic time scale. That can't work. Spell it. Um, Dail being D-I-E-L. What? Yeah. Dail? <laughs> sorry, I, that'll help me remember it. I'm sorry. <laughs> This is a daily process. And actually, so when I've been out fishing uh, and we're using sonar to look at the bottom, we want to see where the fish are. And that's, you see this false bottom sometimes. Exactly. And it's just yep. so many fish that are there and so many creatures that are in that layer that it was the false bottom. But that, that is exactly. the deep. So that's the deep scattering layer, right? That's right. And that came from that sonar thing at first. Exactly. And then at night, that would shift. Exactly. Ah, okay. It would move up in the water column. And so that started sort of this exploration about, okay, well, it has to be biological. What is it? Um, and it turns out to be layers of fish and crustaceans, uh, it, other invertebrates, including squid and um, some jellyfish that have gas enclosures. Uh, so lots of interesting things. Um, and, and we use sound now because we can sample so quickly um, to be able to look at that process. Most of this migration happens over the course of 20 minutes. So going out there with a net, really? trying to really? catch things. 20 minutes? 20 minutes is just not efficient, right? You're not going to get very many samples of these. Is it timed these. to dawn and dusk? That's right. Though different animals have different margins of error. Some migrate earlier than others. Some are much more... Uh, some sleep late. <laughs> satiated, yeah. Probably but there's the always a risk. The teenagers sleep in, probably. That's what they do. But... Uh, <laughs> Huh. So 20 minutes, that's fascinating. But so with sound, you can just get an instant picture. Exactly. Right. right. But you upgraded it, didn't you? You upgraded when you came on as a researcher, you said this is not as, as fine as I'd like to see. And you had a, a hand in uh, improving this sonar. Well, we're always trying to improve, you know, what we're measuring, how much information we're getting back. And one of the ways we've been really pushing the limits is 
coming up with new ways to get those sonars to see. Going out on a ship is pretty limiting. You can only be out there for maybe a month at a time. You can only be in one place at a time. And so you really can't get a picture of what's happening over a large area over long periods of time. So we've been developing ways to put uh, these sonars on observatories and moorings so they can be out in one place continuously on autonomous platforms, little underwater robots that can drive around where we tell them to, uh, to collect mm. samples um, over space over longer periods of time and are working to make those robots smart so that when they see something interesting, they can go back and collect more information on those places that are interesting and, and keep passing by the places where nothing is happening. And that's, that's sort of, I think, one of the places we're having the biggest impact in making change and, and how we make better scientific measurements. So you can actually send these robot robot uh, ships out to ROVs. ROVs, thank you. Uh, uh, our, most of ours, yeah, ROVs would be a tethered vehicle, a remotely oh, operated vehicle. Oh. Yeah, so it'd be on a line, and usually that means you need a ship there to support it. Um, we're working with these little autonomous underwater vehicles, AUVs. So you might oh, think wow. of it kind of like your little propeller-driven drone, although most of these are a little bit bigger than that. Um, and and can be out for longer than you could use your your little uh, you know camera system drone. But but yeah, definitely more more on the drone side. So when you see these these creatures and uh, the biomass, um, you've determined that the they used to be able to see it as a big glob, but now you could see an aggregate of these creatures, which is finer detail. And what did you discover from seeing the aggregation? Is that right? Yeah, aggregation, yeah. That's right. So we've been using autonomous platforms to be able to get closer to these animals so that instead of just seeing them as a layer, we can actually resolve individuals. Wow. And we can start to understand how these individuals are related to their neighbors. And what we're learning from that is that they aren't just a random soup of things. They're not just all lumped together. They're actually found in groups of like animals of about the same size. And so they're forming... Uh, defensive groups, if you will, schools to, um, you know, mitigate the risks that they're facing with predation. And if those groups of a single kind of animal are threatened by a predator, they orient themselves in the same direction. They swim much more tightly together and, and really use the, the sort of nearest neighbor defense. Um, that schooling behavior that you've seen in videos of fish underwater is what we're seeing even in the mesopelagic, where we don't think of you know, visual predation as being the key thing happening at night, they're still using defenses that are effective for that. So there's probably a lot more vision happening at night than we think, more visual predation. So by grouping together, are you seeing a larger amount of these organisms than previously before? It's not changed our view of how many of them there are, but it's changed our view of whether or not they actually care where they are. Right. So when we drag <laughs> oh. a net through the water, we... Right you know, sample for 20 minutes or something with this net. We pull all of the animals of the, up at the top and we assume that we caught them all everywhere, right? That it was just a random assortment. And that turns out not to be the case. Instead, the animals are highly organized and it, even though we still, they're still connected in a layer, within that is highly structured into these smaller groups. And so that's telling us that they, they have lots of other cues affecting where they are and they care a lot about it. They're using this as a, um, a defense mechanism to, to be in a group with their friends, if you will. So if we're in the mesopelagic, there's barely any sort of light. And these uh, squid and lanternfish and shrimp and krill 
are all hanging together. They break into these groups, the defensive groups. They must be able to at least see their buddies in some way or sense their buddies to school like that so quickly. Exactly. Right. And so, so how do they do that? Yeah. We don't have the detailed answers on how they're, what mechanisms they're using, but many of these animals are producing their own light. They're bioluminescent, which is an important um, way that they communicate with each other. And they're also probably using fluid dynamics, the fluid flow. So for fish, oh. that would mean using their lateral line. Um, ah. They don't need to see each other to know where Duh. their neighbors are when That's they're closely the spaced. Again, the umwelt. We don't understand what a lateral line is. Ah, exactly. Good that, vibrations. That is a sensory system we don't have a good analog for. Yeah. I, I have a paleo question. What is the first evidence in a fossil of bioluminescence in an aquatic animal? Ah, good is question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Bioluminescence in fish began as far back as the early Cretaceous period 150 million years ago. There are over 1,500 fish species alive today that are known to glow in the dark. Now what's so cool is that this capability evolved independently at least 27 times. Of these, about half involved the taking up of bioluminous bacteria from the surrounding water, while in the others, the intrinsic light evolved through chemical synthesis. Pretty darn cool, huh? Even 10% of shark species do it too. Think about that. A glowing shark in the dark. Man, I think I want one for a nightlight. But I have a question about sonar. Sonar can mimic and return acoustic signatures generated by organisms. So how do you know that your sonar, which is generated by a machine, is not invasive or destructive or even one step further, changing the ecology of the organisms you're viewing? Yeah, right. That's always a question when we're out sampling is what kind of an effect are we having on the animals? Uh, so we think really carefully about the kinds of signals we use and what organisms we're looking for. In the case of fish, every sound that we're using is too high a sound for them to hear. So that makes it pretty difficult for the sound itself to have a direct impact on those animals. It's a little more challenging when we start to think about marine mammals that have much higher frequency hearing right. and that they're using high frequency sounds themselves. So we try to minimize the level of those sounds and most of the scientific echo sounders that we use are really really sensitive so that we can see small things there are typically much quieter even than the bottom sounder that you would have used on your fishing boat right, uh, so right. so they're not particularly loud and they have really short signals uh, typically you know hundreds of microseconds so they're not having a a very long loud signal to really minimize that impact we hope What's the tiniest of little blips i mean exactly. you can't even mimic it can we can you hear it actually no yourself we you can't, can't we can't hear any of the sonars that we use um, <laughs> ourselves well, yeah what about not, the controversy with the navy and marine mammals so the navy uses a much different kind of sonar signal these are many seconds long and they're a sweep from low frequency to high frequency that or mid-frequency, which is really there, um, the ones that have been observed to have real impacts on marine mammals. So it's a very different kind of source. It's omnidirectional, has a really big spatial footprint instead of being sort of like ours is more focused, like a laser beam, if you will. Um, and it's a really different interaction. But of course, we can never fully know if we don't have an impact. So we study that and we try to understand yeah, that. Yeah. Well, um, 
we found the biggest impacts are actually from the vessel itself. If we're out there on a right. ship, for example, um, animals will completely ignore you when you drive in a straight line, but you start doing funny turns and they're out of there, right? Uh-huh. So they're really oh. aware oh. of um, whether or not they can predict what you're doing is an important part of it, not just whether or not you're there. Uh, and so that's one you know, thing that the Navy's trying to use to mitigate their impacts is to slowly announce their presence before they um, turn things on suddenly um, to try to mitigate the the consequences of that. How do you go about differentiating different species and different types of organisms? I know a squid is going to maybe give you a different signal than a fish, of course, but then within the fish, can you actually begin to kind of pick out species just from signals you're getting back? How, how do you, all these creatures? We use different frequencies of sound and those interact with the physical structures of the organisms differently. So uh, with fish, the most important source of reflections of the animals are in any animal really is a density discontinuity. So a density difference that would be air in the case of the swim bladder for fish, but it's also Ah. their skull and their backbone. And then for other organisms, it's different parts. So those different parts and the different shapes of those different parts affects how the different frequencies of sound reflect back to us and whether how how refined we can start splitting groups yeah uh, it really depends on how many frequencies we're using uh, historically we would use discrete tones so single pitches of sound uh, and and try to bring those together uh, more and more we're now using broadband signals which are much more like uh, how a dolphin uses sonar where it's a range of sounds that are transmitted simultaneously a full a full spectrum so it's sort of like really? going from wow. just having red green and blue to actually having full color we're wow. we're just beginning to figure out how to process that and and marine mammals are consistently better at the processing than we are and in better than the computers for sure. And human listeners are actually really good at doing the discriminations better than we've been able to make the computers uh, do that. So we're trying to learn from them about what tricks they use to make those decisions quickly. What do you mean by humans being able to do this better? So if we slow the signals down that we get back so that they're low enough in pitch for humans to hear, with very, very little training, you can get them to tell you what target that echo came from. Even though it's not biologically meaningful to them, right? It's not something they've had a lifetime of experience doing, but humans are really good at computing these kinds of things and and categorizing signals of all types. Humans are actually good for something. Well, I'm wondering if uh, musicians might have more of an aptitude for picking out those sounds. One of my collaborators has done that experiment and oh. um, the musicians are actually just about as good as anybody else, but they have a language <laughs> but they have a language for the sound. So they can tell you why they made the choice. They can talk about sound in ways that most of us don't have the training to do. And so that's been useful in trying to figure out what is relevant about the signal as we figure out how to make computers do this because we can't we can't use undergraduate music students to do all of our data analysis. <laughs> Especially not the drummer. <laughs> I've come to understand the world's oceans are pretty much a desert void of life, except for the hot spots around. Now, would this migration happen a thousand miles in the middle of the Pacific away from all the islands, those vast areas of ocean? 
Is this everywhere? Well, first I want to say, Dave, that I don't think that the ocean is a desert, not not at least in the in the uh, biggest view. I mean, we used to think that the deep sea had absolutely nothing alive in it. And of course, that's been um, uh, resoundingly refuted, right? There is right. life everywhere at huge range of scales. But um, vertical migration like this with these mesopelagic animals happens throughout the world's oceans. It's something that's happening you know, every day and night um, everywhere we've ever looked. Really? The processes are, are, the subtleties are different. We see different organisms. We see different, slightly different patterns. We see different depth ranges, but we also see a lot of variation even in one place. So we haven't really unraveled how much of it is space and how much of it is, you know, variability caused by uh, seasons and um, movement of eddies and upwelling processes and, and the other physical processes that are happening uh, it's it's a pretty dynamic set of processes, and we really only have you know small snapshots of this um, throughout the world. Wow! You were saying that uh, we're talking about the bristlemouth being the most uh, populous uh, uh, vertebrate on the planet. It's a, it's a little fish, a little fish. How big? How big is this well, it's fish? About show. Uh, can, I'm holding it. Here's up. the sad question: Can you eat them? Because that's really. Well, that, what before is you get to that, at the moment. yeah. Let's before we get to that though, I want to know about copepods uh, being one of the most numerous creatures on the planet. They're an arthropod, and copepods directly affect um, the salmon runs. Do they not? They do. So copepods are kind of you know rice grain sized and shaped little uh, crustaceans that are really important food for lots and lots of different things, but they're, they're as you noted, an important first food source for uh, juvenile salmon. And so the, that variation within the copepod populations is, is very critical. And I'm wondering too, Kelly, you were talking about the ocean being productive pretty much everywhere, but there are these notorious dead zones What's happening in the dead zones? What, what, can you explain what that is? I think the, the dead zones you're referring to are areas of really low oxygen, and those yeah. can be geographic areas, but they can also be vertical depths. We call that the oxygen minimum zone or the oxygen minimum layer. It's a, you know, a specific depth where uh, oxygen is low enough that many vertebrate animals in particular have a hard time um, respirating. Anything that's that's uh, really active um, can have trouble in those areas. And it can even be kind of caustic because of the changes in pH that happen with low oxygen. These dead zones can be caused by phosphorus, the, the runoff from fertilizer, and also through algae. Is that right? That's true. But uh, oxygen minimum layers are also a natural part of the system. In some oh. areas of the world, we expect that, particularly after a big phytoplankton bloom, as those phytoplankton decay in a really um, rich ecosystem, they're using up oxygen in the process of decay. And so you'll find um, that those are amplified by fertilizer and runoff and things like that, but they're not entirely caused by that, at least not um, in many parts of the world. But dead zones are temporary, right? I dead mean... zones are usually thought of as temporary, where the oxygen minimum zone is a permanent feature that can intensify oh. and weaken. From bringing it back to this idea about vertical migration, some animals can tolerate it. And so they'll actually spend their, you know, their quiet time 
in that oxygen minimum zone where very few active predators are going to come hunting for them ah, because they can't breathe. Clever. So it can be an advantage to have a physiological adaptation to be able to survive that. It's a place for camouflage. Well, yeah, just to hide out where the uh, predators aren't. Exactly. I'm wondering, every now and then, Kelly, we, the ocean here will turn a bright green. There will be plankton blooms that are just so intense. Should I worry about that? It turns this super bright green and well, it kind of freaks me out. Water. Well, it can go on for uh, you know weeks up here in Southeast Alaska sometimes, and you don't see it that often. But what what's happening there is what triggers such a hyper production of of uh, phytoplankton? Sewage from cruise ships. Now, <laughs> it's uh, you know. You're in a, uh, the West Coast of the United States can be a really productive environment, including the Gulf of Alaska. And most of the time that's driven by upwelling of deep, cold, nutrient-rich water. So you get this flux of fertilizer at exactly the right time for the hmm. sunlight, particularly in Southeast Alaska, if it happens at exactly the right time where there's enough sunlight for things to grow really quickly, when you put that pulse of nutrient-rich cold water in, everything goes gangbusters. And so we see that here off the coast of California. Every seven to 10 days when we have upwelling from uh, during the sort of spring through fall um, because of the wind that causes vertical advection. Um, what are these nutrients? So we're talking about nitrogen and phosphorus and iron um, and many of the other things that you would add to your garden to try to make your plants grow. And these are more abundant in deep water where they're uh, picked up by uh, the movement of water over sediments um, and sort of replenished from things dying and decaying in that water where they're being used up really rapidly at the surface. So, so if these you elements come from death and decay or are they naturally in seawater or in the ocean, the benthic areas of the ocean? Yeah, they're coming from lots of different sources, including death and decay, um, as well as from the, the sedimentary processes that are leaching some of these um, nutrients. And when those cold, I guess we think of them as non-depleted waters get moved back up to the surface and you're in spring where there's a lot of sunlight and everything's just waiting. You've got all these okay. um, new recruits. You go boom. And that's so, when you get that wow. beautiful spring so, bloom. All right. So I won't freak out so much. It's kind of a natural good thing. It is. And that's where your salmon come from is following right. those blooms, right? Right. Well, that's what they do. And I'm just wondering, so the ecology, the food chain starts down at this really tiny level are you able to over the you've been doing this for a number of years have you been able to see uh that food chain actually help you predict what fish runs are gonna be doing i know you've done some work off the pribilofs looking at there's the trophic well i'm i'm getting out of my depth here so to speak the pribilof islands they're off of alaska it, they are. yeah the gulf of alaska but uh but I'm wondering if your work can actually help predict fish runs. The answer is sort of. Every time that I think we're going to understand something, we think it's a simple predictive process, the animals teach us something. You know, they teach us what it is that's really important to them. And we tend to measure things like how many of something, right? How many copepods are there? What was the total amount of uh, fluorescence from right. phytoplankton? And it turns out that we're learning from the animals that they don't just care about how much of something there is. They care about where it is and how it's grouped. It matters a lot whether all of those copepods in the ocean are evenly spread out 
and cover a huge area and you'd have to right. swim forever to keep eating them or whether right. they're distributed in really small hotspots. If you're a predator who can find that hotspots, you're going to, if that's gangbusters, it's great. But if you miss it, well, you're dead. The answer is that often if it's distributed very um, randomly, you're also often dead. So it really matters exactly what the characteristics of the organisms are, not just how many of them are. It's, it's a lot about their behavior. Yeah, I, I guess where I was going with that was, that, you know, if you see a, a plankton bloom and that triggers uh, more copepods and uh, you know that the copepods have done very well that year and just as the juvenile salmon are heading out to sea, you might know that in a couple of years, those salmon are all coming back and they all fed well that year. So right. that's where I'm connecting right. all this. Well, that's exactly. just boom and bust of nature, though. It's true. And it turns out that it really matters for the salmon how the other fish are doing. It matters a lot how the anchovies and sardines that are around the same size as those right. juvenile salmon are because they dilute predation on those juvenile salmon. So in the years where there's not a lot of those other forage species, no matter how many baby salmon you make, they get eaten. <laughs> uh, if there are other things to be eaten by uh, those predators that are easier to find and easier to catch, then the salmon have a better year. So you have to think about it from both the production side and the consumption side. Hmm. Now, prior to this interview, Ray sent me a photo of a juvenile, a larval stage of the dragonfish. And it is this crazy <laughs> little silly character with these eyes on these stalks, stalks that are almost the length of its juvenile larval body. Why? Why does it look, why do they have these eyes? I guess so it could see in all directions, I would guess. Yeah, I don't know why they're on stalks. That's a great question. But so many of the animals in the mesopelagic have really remarkable visual adaptations to deal with these incredibly low levels of light. So they have these huge eyes that have all these bizarre adaptations like heads that can see through um in oh, some yeah. cases for example eyes. to oh, protect yeah, that. that some of them have really funky eyes where one eye is really small and the other eye is really large and they use those in different directions wow. because they have to pay attention to light coming from above and they have to pay attention to the light at level where they're living and so that's a challenging thing to balance. Yeah. And they, they look at more than just the level of light. They care about how it's polarized because if an animal swims over top of you, it disrupts the polarization of that light. And if you can detect that, even though it doesn't change the level very much, you can figure out that there's something worth eating above you. Or something that's going to eat you. Usually the things that want to eat you come from below, it seems. Yeah. So. So that's what I was, oh. uh, I've been fascinated with uh, bioluminescence and, uh, you know, how it's used as a lure, but it's also used to disappear. And a lot of, uh, you know, most fish are countershaded, but once you get down into the mesopelagic, that countershading happens with lights on your belly that exactly match the light above. So when a predator down below is looking for you, if you are matching the light from above, you've the essentially- The light level. The light level. Yeah, the light level yeah. from above. You've you've essentially disappeared, right? You've, you've essentially, wait, have created an invisible cloaking device. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Which is mind blowing. But you know, to get back to the eyes and the stalks of the dragon, the larval dragonfish, we and excuse me while I do a paleo nerd out for you here for a second, <laughs> Kelly. Uh, but our previous guest was uh, Yasmina Vyman who's a brilliant young woman uh, working on uh, chemical analysis of fossils, 
there is a very bizarre fossil that's been known from uh, the uh, Chicago, from the Midwest area in the Maison Creek uh, fauna from the Carboniferous Age. And it's called a Tully monster. And a Tully monster, they have hundreds of these fossils, but nobody's ever been able to figure out if it's a... And they're small. They're small, aren't they? Yeah, they're about, they're maybe six, eight inches long. Maybe a foot might be a really big one, but it's an incredible beast that uh, nobody's ever figured out if it's... There's been a lot of controversy back and forth about whether or not it's... But cut to the chase. It has eyes on stalks. It has the eyes and the ends of stalks. And Could yes, it be Mita. a mesopelagic ray? Well, no. What I'm thinking, though, is that is that Yasmina was able to determine that, yes, it is a vertebrate. The Tully monster is a vertebrate. Through chemical analysis, she kind of settled it by looking at those fossils. But there's a thing that happens in larval stages of, like, the dragonfish, where their eyes are on the ends of stalks. And as they become adults, those come into the body, and it looks like more like a normal fish. All right, well, cut to, what, what's your point, Ray? Well, I'm thinking <laughs> that with the Tully monster, it's, it's some... It's a larval? It could be either a larval thing, or it's just one of those triggers in evolution that happened, um, convergent evolution. It's a it's a thing that... Where it's looking around for predators. Yeah. 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 So, anyways... Well, interesting, interesting. That was a diversion. Sorry there, Yeah, Kelly. so when you're bored, Google the Tully monster. It's really not a monster. Well, well, indeed, but you, okay, I have but a question you asked about, Dave, you asked I, if bristlemouse could be eaten, right? Yeah, yeah, well, before we get to that, I, I, I do, because that's the, the real that. scary part of this interview, uh, uh, the depletion of this incredible mesopelagic biomass. But have you been able to find evidence of marine mammals or pinnipeds actually pursuing on a regular basis this migration as a major food source because oh most... absolutely right these mesopelagic animals are really critical food resources for lots of different animals including many marine mammals but also tunas and bottom fish this really predictable movement animals can exploit so uh, we've done hmm. a lot of work with spinner dolphins off hawaii that not only follow the vertical movements of these animals as they come up to the depths where these marine mammals can actually dive to, because during the day, they a little spinner dolphin just can't get to 800 meters. But in Hawaii, those animals also migrate inshore as they move up and down the slopes of the islands that are really, really steep. And the spinner dolphins do the same. They basically follow them in and follow them back off until they get too deep for them to dive. And so they're restricted in the amount of time they have to forage to when those little, mostly lanternfish that they're eating um, and are specialized to feed on are within the depth range they can dive to. Yeah, they've they've got a completely modified dentition that only lets them really? snack on these little guys with a slurping tongue between a gap in their wow. teeth. So Really? And these yeah. are localized populations of spinner dolphins. They don't migrate anywhere. So basically... A prey and predator stay in the same location. Exactly. I'm thinking in a way that, uh, you know, every fisherman, I've fished a lot in my day, and every fisherman is usually fishing right as the light changes, dusk and dawn, right? And it's basically, it's the triggering of that, you know, out in the ocean I'm talking about, too, that when things start moving, and the dolphin are basically oh. doing the same kind of thing. So wait, as the light changes... As, it, as that big migration happens up and down, 
That's got to just dinner trigger time, a whole feeding right? frenzy. It's, it's dinner time. Dinner time. So. What's, what's really interesting, Dave, is that we see here off California that these midwater animals are really important for. Uh, Rizzo's dolphins, but the prey don't just sit and wait to get eaten by the Rizzo's dolphins, and they don't just use vertical movement once a day to try to stay away from their predators, right? If they hear a Rizzo's dolphin, or if we hear a Rizzo's dolphin, within a few seconds, we see that the the animals that they're trying to consume dive deeper. So even in the middle oh. of a migration, they might quit and dive deeper to try really? to get away from those dolphins wow. that can only get to, you know, 450 meters or so. You'll see those animals dive even deeper than that really quickly. And so this vertical movement behavior can happen at even shorter time scales than day to day as well. Kelly, with those small little creatures dodging the dolphins, are they responding uh, quickly because of the pinging that the dolphins are using? Is it the sound that drives them down? That's a great question. We're working on that now. There's been, you know, this uh, longstanding view that they can't hear the clicks from those right. species. And if we characterize the energy that's in the clicks um, from the point of view of the dolphin, there really isn't much energy in the frequencies that these fish can hear, but there might be enough. Um, especially for a really relevant clue. Uh, I will say that we have a hydrophone out there, an underwater microphone, and are recording the signals that we're hearing at the same time as we're looking at the movement behavior of these animals. And we can hear a click and within five or 10 seconds see this vertical movement. So it's already happened enough for us to see it, right? Mm. We see movements of sometimes hundreds of meters in vertical space. Because really that's the only place you have to hide in the ocean is, is using darkness. And, and it's a really rapid and astounding response in some cases. And they don't respond to every species of marine mammals, only yeah. the ones that is hunting them so wow and when you say you're you're looking at this area and in real time are you talking about thousand meters in one direction or all direction or is it a mile i mean what is your playing field of, of view so the sonar is sitting at the bottom at about a thousand meters and looking straight upwards in a pretty narrow cone so at the surface of the water we're looking at about a football field in area and right. at the bottom it's much much smaller uh, the okay. hydrophone, um, it depends on which animals we're listening to, how far away we hear them. We can hear blue whales, for example, throughout the entire bay. But mm. uh, if we're listening to Rizzo's dolphins, we're only able to hear the animals that are quite close to the hydrophone because their signals are incredibly directional and really high in frequency, which means they, they decay really quickly. And, and what is the low frequency that can be heard for thousands of thousands of miles? That's generated by some whales. That's right. Like like the blue whale that generates, you know, signals in the hertz that we can't even hear, in fact, because they're too and low. And sperm whales as well. Uh, sperm whales are a bit higher than that. So their their center frequency for their clicks is actually about twice the frequency of human hearing. So they're still pretty high in the grand scheme of things. Low for a toothed whale, but uh, high for us. And do you have a computer program that takes these frequencies like a spectrum and, and mm -hmm. you can say, oh, that's dolphin, that's krill, that's a copepod, or that's, I don't think copepods scream at night when they're eaten. Well, they but, might. Um, but the animals that use echolocation, you, you have a spectrum that as a control? 
it's not that easy, but yeah, certainly. <laughs> you know one when you hear one. Yeah, well, that's part of the problem is it's usually easier for us to tell than it is to get a computer to do it in an automated oh. way, especially because these animals are always talking over top of each other. And so oh, trying right. to pick out one from the others and uh, do so is... Um, it's, that's always a challenge. So that we're constantly working on new techniques for doing that. And a lot of times it depends on what the question is. You know, what do we, what do we need to know um, defines how we ask that of the data? Huh. I'm wondering, Kelly, when you go to work, are, are you headed out? I'm just wondering how you gather this data. Do you just go into the office and uh, you've got the uh, sono buoys out there reporting to you? Or do you go out on the ship often for adventure and go looking in different places? Are you on the ship or just looking at data on your office computer? Hey, all of the above. I can see okay. from my desk right now, I can see a live screen. Uh, we have a sensor on a cable offshore uh, that's show in about us, a thousand meters of water. Computer. Let's show see. us. Can you show us? I'm going to do a screenshot. There's that. Wow. Okay. That gives us a view through the water column once every two and a half seconds continuously. Wow. We now have about three and a half years worth of data from that. So. Um, and we use that in part to make decisions about what we're going to do out there. So we have an experiment where for a couple of weeks, we'll have little robots out there taking samples of water. We're limited to 60 samples per robot per deployment in those two weeks. You want to use them in really right. good places. Yeah. Yeah. And so we help decide which depths to take those samples based on where we're seeing the animals in the echo sounder in the sonar at huh. what times. And being able to make those decisions on the fly from a real-time sensor is pretty remarkable. Yeah, we also go out there with other robots and imaging systems and, and uh, some of these autonomous platforms that stay out for a month at a time. Uh, but we only get the data back when they come back to shore. So a big mix of things from, from ship to wow. uh, cable. Do you ever have uh, like that uh, Hollywood moment like, oh, my God, do you see that on the screen? What? Oh, get out there now. Launch all ships. Have you had moments like that? Like there's something oh, yeah. weird going on. We have moments like that. Sometimes you're lucky enough to be ready to go for them, and other times you just scratch your head and go, what the heck was that? Uh, but but I think those are actually the, my favorite moments in science are those moments when you've suddenly figured something out, whether it's happening live or you're analyzing the data later, and you're the only one who knows the answer to that question. For that little bit of time, it's all yours. Wow, okay, cool. I'm gonna switch. I'm going to switch gears to the scary part. So... Um, <laughs> I uh, found out that, uh, yeah, uh, 2020 is the most recent data on record for the total fisheries and aquaculture production from the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations stated that humans pulled out 214 million tons in 2020, give or take whatever. And uh, that's hard to comprehend because we have nothing to really compare that to. What is that? How many dump trucks is that? How many school buses is that? I don't know. But regardless, they're saying that this mesopelagic biomass is 1 to 18 billion tons of fish. That's right. So my question is, what does it taste like? And are we in danger of, of that being the next gold rush? And uh, can you eat a bristlemouth? Uh, they look pretty bony to me. <laughs> um, I think the bigger problem than the bones is really the kind of fat that's in them. So they're really rich in certain wax esters. Uh, I'd be more akin to you eating an entire bag of Oleo potato chips. 
probably not very pleasant for your digestive system. In fact, animals that are mesopelagic specialists tend to have specialized digestion to handle all those really fatty waxes that are hard to digest. So if you were to eat them, you probably wouldn't get a lot of a lot of the calories that they're in them, you would not be able to access in addition to them being kind of gross and bony. Right. Oh, well, that's but, good. So we're not in danger of uh, being exploited as a food resource. They are not being exploited for direct human consumption, but they are being exploited for fish feed, for farmed fish and fish products, if you will, and for fish oil for the supplement market. So I think that's the place where that right. It potentially is a gold rush right now. Accessing these animals is incredibly expensive and no one's really come up with a financially profitable way to do so. But uh, where there's a will, there's a way. And with that amount of biomass down there, um, there are several countries that are thinking that it might be, um, you know, very advantageous for them to have that access. Exploitable. Well, let's hope. Exactly. How get grossed out by it. How does that process of, in one of your talks, you said there's been groups now that are looking at or applying for permits? Is it regulated at all on a United Nations level or what? Well, within an international border, it would be, but not in the open right. ocean. It's not regulated. Right. And the U.S. has decided that we will not be issuing permits for the mesopelagic, at least in the for the time being. But several other countries are issuing, you know, fisheries China access permits. and Indonesia and, and uh, Norway. Japan and yeah. Norway. But you could go to the open ocean and, and do this without asking permission of anyone. It would depend on your country's landing permit rules. So it's not ah. it's not always as black and white as all that. Okay. It's very complicated. Yeah. But, you know, the real the real issue isn't is partly that we really don't know a lot about these animals. Um, and we know that they're playing a really critical service for our climate. They're yeah. And we're just starting to grasp how much carbon they help export to the deep sea, right? They're feeding at the surface where those um, phytoplankton are taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and they're transporting it as they swim deep and release their waste products or get eaten into the deep sea as sort of a rapid conveyor belt that helps get that carbon where it can be sequestered from the atmosphere. Otherwise, it just keeps going back up, right? I just realized there must be a lot of 15 gigatons of mesopelagics. That's a lot of sewage, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And we now, we're now we now thinking that they may count for about half of the carbon export to the deep sea. Wow. Uh, and so they're, they're really playing a critical role in helping buffer us from what has already been the worst of climate change has been, you know, experienced by the ocean and not by those of us on terra firma. And so we don't know what would happen if we were to disrupt that process. Um, I, I think, you know, we should learn from previous lessons that if we have a free for all in fishing, it's probably not going to go very well. Well, we should learn from that, but yeah. <laughs> and, and we really have mm. sort of a unique opportunity in the history of fisheries to under try to understand the system before it's exploited instead of trying to piece together the puzzle after the fact. While we're talking doom and gloom, how, the marine snow that you see in all the Mbari videos, it just it just it's just like a you know a blizzard of particles. Is that larval fish, fish scales, and every kind of whatnot, and microplastics? What do you, do you, does an Mbari analyze that snow on and off uh, very often? So the marine snow is a kind of mix of all of those things, right? It's it's 
waste products, it's Oops. skin cells, it's dead critters, it's the mucus houses of larvaceans after they've been um, filtered so much that they're clogged. It's all kinds of snot and goop. Um, yeah. There are microplastics in that as well. There's a former Imbari postdoc who's now a faculty member at Scripps who's been working on that to try to understand, you know, what what proportion of that is is uh, made up of microplastics in in Monterey Bay in particular, but also elsewhere. But also that's a you know is a really key part of the carbon cycle as well. That that sort of passive chain. Um, and we now have a new PI here that hopefully you'll decide to talk to at some point who is really interested in teasing apart what that snow is and where it came from mm. and uh, how oh. it's being remineralized by you know, the microbes in the water column. Uh, she says she's passionate about poop. So <laughs> well, that's cool. Kelly, you, you, you've listened to a few of our programs, so you, you probably know this, well, have this you? question is coming. I think she has. She wanted to see what she was getting into, Dave. <laughs> okay. So uh, if you could time travel, you know, I know you're, you're concerned with modern-day behavior and all that. Um, let me give you a choice, then, is that if you could time travel back to see a prehistoric scene uh, unfold before your eyes, what, what era, what, what epoch, what period would you go back to? Or Wait is there something? I bet you no. she has one. All right. Well, okay. then I'll follow yeah. up with the other one. Okay. Do you have one? I, you know, I'd really want to go back and see the first mammal enter the ocean. Oh. We've had a lot of debate about what that would look like and who the closest living relatives are. And I'd love to just be able to see for myself. Ambulocetus. Exactly how that how that came to be. And I should say that I'm a little distracted at the moment. There are four humpback whales breaching right outside my window at the moment. No it's a pretty breaching? Pretty spectacular sight. So Yeah, just no out there way. breaching off and, of Moss you know, Landing. They're feeding on anchovies here right now. It's oh, pretty amazing. Cool. Wow. The yeah. second part my of your second, question. My second part, yes, I just want to ask this. Is there something in the ocean you've always wanted to see but have not been able to see? Gosh, there's so many. Um I think the things that you can't see, you know, from the submersibles or whatever you wish. Yeah. Well, you know, from my perspective, one of the things that we learn is that, um, you know, I often see things as pixels, right? They're echoes to me. They're not actual animals. I'm trying to figure out who they are. And we've been integrating the acoustics and video to try to get a better understanding of what different animals sound like in an echo. And very often we're learning that they just don't let us see them at all. Right. We know they're out there. I can tell you mm. it's 50 meters ahead of us. And no matter how far ahead we drive, they never come into view. Um, mm. They're really paying attention to our presence. And wow. so um, I can tell you exactly which day and which pixel. I would really love to know who that is. But I can't tell you what it is because I don't know. You know its size? Probably in the, you know, eight inch category. Right, right. Wow. So that's actually the known unknown. Exactly. You know um, they're there, but they're unknown to you. Exactly. And we've been trying to put that picture together to try to figure out, you know, from all of those camera sightings of the last 30 years that have been done in the mesoplogic here at Ambari, what didn't we ever see that was probably there? So that's hmm. uh, one, one way we're using sound now is uh, to give us a bigger 
footprint of our measurements to try to understand what it is we do and don't see and how those animals are responding to our presence. Sort of the uh, uh, Schrodinger's fish, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> well, have you I seen like these that. robots? <laughs> That's good. Have you seen these robots that mimic fish and eels and snakes that could possibly maybe get close to your mysterious pixel? We have, in fact, been comparing ourselves to different robotic platforms, one of which is, you know, torpedo shaped and like a more like a predator and one that's just a giant box. And you know which one they respond more to? Predator. <laughs> yeah. Even though it should be smaller, quieter with lower light. Right, it's right. a biologically relevant cue. So I kind of wonder if those uh, biomimetic robots would actually make us uh, worse off, not better. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, then you need yeah. a robot that looks like an inert jellyfish without tentacles. <laughs> yeah, right. The one that looks like a refrigerator is the least problem. Go figure, right? Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, uh, Dave is in the business of making biomimetic uh, uh, characters. Well, no, I, I just mimic human movement in arms and stuff. Oh, because I, I see. do puppets, yeah. All right, so I'm going to ask my question, which I kind of already asked, and it was about the biomass. and But how are we going to protect this, the largest biomass on planet Earth? How are we going to protect it? Do you have any thoughts or ideas on... On moving forward, uh, you know, you can do a, a hundred thousand TED Talks, but how do we get the world to understand this is something that we need to protect? We have to do the hundred thousand TED Talks. Oh, I think kidding? we have right. to have people <laughs> to right. understand, you know, but I and I think you need to, you know, meet people where they are and um, recognize that food security is, is critically important. Um, so... It requires attacking that on multiple different fronts. Some of that comes from science, right? We can tell you what our data is saying, but it can't all come from science. There are ethical decisions and legal decisions and, and sort of balances of risks and benefits that science really isn't equipped to handle. That's not what we do. We, we answer questions, not uh, make challenging ethical decisions. So I will leave those to the folks who are experts at that and, and where that's that's their field of study um, and try to give them the tools and information that they need to make informed choices. Brilliant. You are supplying the answers to our questions. Well, I was going to well, say, too, we're trying. <laughs> another one of the big platforms is just down the road there from you is the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and they have a deep sea exhibit now that opened up uh, a year ago, I think, somewhere in there. Yeah, you help work on that, and uh, that's certainly uh, another platform for people just to be blown away. And I'm really yeah. anxious to see that show. It's pretty phenomenal. Um, you know, they really captured in this in ways I haven't seen in many other aquarium exhibits the process of science, that it's a living thing itself. So one of my favorite parts of the exhibit is this tank with this funny little red jelly in it, and it says, my name is blank. <laughs> and talks about the process of discovering new species and how they're named and how we know it's new. Um, my other favorite is a, a tank that has red jelly in it with visible light. And then you push the button and it converts the light to the color of the light in the deep sea and the jelly just disappears. Yes. Wow. So that shows you how red is camouflaged is something that we kind of can't comprehend, right? Red is stop signs. It's bright. Um, I, and so yeah. just to... To really transform your way of thinking in seconds about what light means and how vision works in the deep sea is pretty remarkable. It's a it's a phenomenal exhibit. If you ever get a chance to get up here, Dave, you should you should go take a look. I will. I will. I love the Monterey Bay Aquarium. 
Yeah, this is the, the most expensive exhibition they've ever put together anywhere. Ray, I once owned a vial of pyrocystis fusiformis. What? You've been practicing that. <laughs> no, I bought it for my son's science experiment. We actually had it at home, and, and I had to set up a light where I changed its bioluminescent to, to be viewed for our daylight. So I made it bright at night and dark during the day. She knows what I'm talking about. I don't. <laughs> okay. From a science lab, you can buy bioluminescent. You oh. can actually buy them now from like fancy gift catalogs in these little dinosaur-shaped containers, which is a little funny. So there you yeah. go with your paleo there, connection. There, there we go. They, they call them dino flagellate. Oh. Wow. Well, hey. that was brilliant, Kelly. That was amazing. I just loved all this. I love data. Yeah, he's a data freak, and uh, I uh, I just really appreciate, uh, I have a better view of what the ocean is really all about out there. Thank you so much, Kelly, for you know joining us here on Paleo Nerds. Well, thanks, Ray and Dave. It was a great fun to nerd out with you both today. <laughs> Thank you, and uh, I'll see you at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. All right. See you, Kelly. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Mesopelagius. <laughs> the deep scattering layer. That was crazy. I just was blown away at the amount, the gigatons of living creatures. Yeah, the, the most numerous uh, creatures on the vertebrate creatures on the planet are bristlemouths. So here's what's crazy. Let's go paleo about this. When did this start? What were the original creatures? Are they found in fossils? How do you know that, that these, like, let's say this happened in the Cretaceous, right? What organisms were they? Have they gone extinct? Did they fall to the ocean and become in sediment so you would never know they were mesopelagics? Well, actually... Or would you be able to look at their... Would you be able to look at them and say, oh, because of these characteristics, these were most likely mesopelagic creatures that, that did that daily and nightly bounce? The diel. See, we learned a word today. Diel. Diel. But wait, define die again? Happens every, daily. It's a day, another. It's a sciencey way of saying every day. Well, why not just say well, you daily? Know. There's nocturnal night, you know, diurnal's <laughs> day, but diel is the whole day. Anyways, there actually is fossil evidence for these food chains, and uh, going back to Eocene sediments, they're actually able to, you know, fish scale counts in the sediment can give you oh. an idea of certain species and so they can see yeah but surely this has been happening before the yeah, great extinctions yeah. but Come i'm on. sure what, what about in the permian what about in the you know the lantern fish abundance goes back you know they can actually see that in the fossil record in the sediments so they can see cycles how far do they well, go i back? think you know a lot of our modern day fish didn't evolve until after the cretaceous extinction event so there was this big explosion of fish populations then. Well, I'd be curious to find out if there was this mesopelagic dance 200 million oh, years ago. Oh, it's always been going on, man. It's ago. always been going on. It goes back in. A... But where's the evidence for it? Where's the Well, there is evidence for massive filter feeding creatures all the way back into the Jurassic and even into the Ordovician. There's an anomalocarid that is... Uh, survived into the Ordovician, and it's an eight-foot-long arthropod that's a filter feeder, which shows you, I mean, that there are these filter-feeding creatures, and there's planktonic organisms. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're eating things that go up during the night and back down during the day. I would bet bottoms to dollar, or whatever the phrase is, that that 
That is, that's what's occurring. Darkness is, you hide in the okay. darkness. So creatures going up and down right, right. and the whole food web. And in fact, you know, I mean, the thing that I think would be fascinating is try to, you know, match up the work that Kelly's doing there in Mbare and uh, to get some uh, paleoecologists, you know, comparing data. So, I mean, we're kind of a link between these worlds, Dave. Um, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. You know, looking at those, you know, what happens when the entire ocean dies? That's what they think happened in the Permian. Right. Something catastrophic. There right. the Permian-Triassic extinction. The 95% of all life goes extinct, and it probably started in the ocean, the chain. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, well, all that sulfur from those volcanoes just killed the phytoplankton, which killed the zooplankton. And... Maybe that's a real simple explanation, and it's more complex than that. So who knows? Yeah. Who yeah. knows? We'll get someone on well, that. Awesome. Well, that's what we're here. At the Paleo Nerd Department. We'll we're get here on to that. ask questions and then get the experts to answer our dumb our questions. Yes, right? we approximate. <laughs> Actually, you know what? No question is, is dumb and no question. In fact, the question unasked is the stupid question. Isn't that right? How does it work? What's that saying? I don't know. I, I'm not going to ask you that question. It's blowing my mind <laughs> All again. Right. All right. Well, signing off from Wollongong, Australia, which is about an hour south of Sydney in the springtime. Uh, this is David Strassman. And uh, saying, see ya. See ya light. Can you do that in an Aussie accent? Well, you're, and you're signing off in the autumn. Uh, it's autumn here. And wait, yeah, that's right. This is mind blowing. I'm up here in rainy Alaska. We had some beautiful stretches, sunny weather, but now it's back to 100% rain all day. 100% rain all day tomorrow, and the dial thing goes on with rain, rain, rain. But, hey, it's rainforest. Signing off from the springtime. And signing off from the autumn, it is Mr. Troll saying adios, David. See you next time, dude. See you next time. All right. Bye, Ray. Happy tour, man. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. Don't you understand? I'm a paleo nerd.